and welcome to the Transfer Window. This is the podcast that not only takes you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football, but brings you insight and analysis on the issues that matter every Monday, Wednesday and Friday. I'm Johnny McFarlane and joining me are pundits extraordinaire Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. On the pod today, Benfica wonderkid Joe Felix is attracting serious Premier League interest. We look back at their dismal 4-0 defeat at Everton and ask what's next for Manchester United. And we bring you the latest news on the in-demand Leo winger Pepe. Well, we come at you with some news about one of Europe's hottest talent. He's the youngest player ever to score a hat-trick in the Europa League. He's a Benfica starlet, 19 years old. Duncan, tell us who this man is and where he could be going. Yeah, Jean Felix, um, who we talked about uh, on the podcast some months ago, I, um, identifying him as uh, a player that the top European clubs um, saw. On a you know on a parallel, I think with Kylian Mbappe's rise in, in the European game, someone who breaks into one of the the leading teams in his his domestic league and immediately uh, delivers goals um, and creates goals and shows. Uh, Technical ability, pace on the ball, and I think I think most importantly, decision making on the ball that suggests he can go to the very top of the game. Um, as we said at the time, he has a 120 million euro release clause at Benfica. Um, information I had was that he is expected to be sold this summer, and that the price will be that full 120 million euros. Various clubs trying to get him for less money, but Benfica. Um, talking and telling the fans that they want to keep him for another season. And I think strategically, from a football point of view, they'd like to. But because that release clause is there, um, the expectation from the people around Felix is that someone will trigger it and uh, force the player to make a decision whether he wants to spend another season at Benfica or take a move to a bigger club. One of those clubs um, seriously looking at him is Manchester City. Um You can understand why uh, we know Pep Guardiola values that kind of um, second line forward uh, almost above all other players. Um, He's got a huge range of them to work from in his current squad. He's uh, he's also converted some to being uh, central midfielders, for example, Kevin De Bruyne, um, very effectively into into a a central midfield role. But Felix... um, Manchester City think has all the attributes to to play in that um, second line of attack for Manchester City, maybe even operate as in the central role. And we saw Raheem Sterling moving to play centre forward um, against Tottenham in the 1-0 victory this weekend. Um, Not uh, an obvious choice to be a centre forward, but that's not the first time Sterling's played there. And um, you could see Felix, who's who's taller than Sterling, playing that role in the future. At present, Benfica are using him as a number 10 in a, a 4-4-1-1 formation, and that, that's, I, that's basically built around him and ideally suited to him. So he has that um, ability to time his runs into the box and score goals. Um, City, I'm told, are, are like the other clubs, are trying to do it um, at a cheaper price. That would be a record signing for Manchester City. I think it raises the prospect um, of... Leroy Zani leaving the club. We know that Zani hasn't um, signed a new contract. 
Um, we know he has been out of favour with Guardiola um, a couple of times this season. Um, and I think if he doesn't renew, um, City will be looking um, to to possibly change in that position. Um, Felix has been very strongly linked with Manchester United. Um, he should tick a lot of boxes for Manchester United. He fits that Edward Wood transfer strategy, which he's trying to impose for this summer, which is to concentrate on signing players uh, in their early 20s or even younger, um, who look like becoming top players. But I'm told that United um, uh, were in contact with Felix's representatives recently and told them that they had no intention of making an offer for the player. Um, he wasn't at the top of their list in, in that position uh, and they should um, discount them as possible buyers, which um, is surprising. Uh, I think it came as a surprise to Felix as representatives. Um, but uh, we've seen a lot of bad decision-making at Manchester United recently, and maybe this just fits into, um, into that category of um, missing uh, a player who a lot of people see as becoming an absolute top uh, player in European football uh, in the next five to ten years. Even more galling, I guess, for Manchester United fans that City um, are so keen on, on getting the player. Uh, it, I think it's interesting in terms of should Manchester City complete uh, a full winning schedule to the end of the season and retain the Premier League title, Guardiola is smart enough to know that he needs to um, bring in players who will make the squad better, who will make the first 11 better, because the challenge after this season is going to be even greater. Obviously, failing to qualify for a Champions League semi-final is another rod for his back. And so bringing in more quality to challenge for places is going to be something of a priority for Pep Guardiola. He also has um, issues with regards to central midfield, and by that I mean um, the defensive roles. He also has issues, obviously, at fullback, where he still doesn't seem to be able to select uh, or certainly trust the fullbacks that he believes will play um, the majority of a full season. Um, obviously, as well, the City have the uh, threats of both uh, financial fair play restrictions and uh, a FIFA. Um, charge over the recruitment of players under the age of 18 hanging over them. So uh, as long as those uh, particular issues are not uh, preventing them from signing players, then it's imperative that they um, get ahead of the game and make sure that they're in a position to uh, be right at the front of the queue when it comes to players like Jao Felix. So it's, I think it's one that... Um, despite the fact he's highly valued by other big clubs in Europe, I think uh, a move to City would be attractive to the player himself. Um, and also, obviously, there'd be a major financial uh, reward for him coming from Benfica. Uh, he'd probably be looking at at least tripling, never mind quadrupling his wages mm -hmm. to come to English football. And as, said, uh, as Duncan said, being in that second forward line for, for City, he could play as a number 10. and uh, He also could play on the left side uh, of that three as well. So um, And obviously City, I think, also may just well be looking to get rid of some players this summer. I think they've overloaded their squad in the past two to three years and very few have left. 
we should point out that the um, emergence of Phil Foden in central midfield and obviously the goal he scored, um, his first Premier League goal for City to, to earn the win against Tottenham. Uh, and we should also point out a very, very impressive Tottenham display given the exertions of the, uh, the midweek um, elimination of City in the Champions League. Um, it was a very good game of football uh, and, and one that could have gone um, to easily a draw, uh, never mind anywhere else. So um, Foden, I think, will be important for the next season. And bringing in another young player uh, on the same kind of uh, generation age group as Foden, uh, so you've got a few of them now. Uh, so creating a squad stroke first team which has a youthful core of players who will play first team football um, would be very advantageous in terms of them going forward as well. Is this just another example, Duncan, of why Manchester United need to bring in a sporting director of some kind uh, and quickly, something we've discussed on this podcast numerous times? Look, I think it's it's a bizarre situation Manchester United have got themselves in, in that they clearly uh, and repeatedly briefed on their desire to um, improve their recruitment um, and improve, improve the structure of the club by appointing uh, a technical director. Um, basically, one of the things that was promised to the support um, upon the dismissal of, of Jose Mourinho as manager. Um, they're now, uh, well, look, the transfer window isn't open, but the transfer market is very much in full flow at present. This is the time of the year when deals are being put in place, when players are being approached, um, sounded out uh, contract issues um, and demands assessed by clubs before they start, um, mostly before they start making bids for players. We've, we've actually already seen some uh, very large deals put in place for the summer. Bayern Munich have bought um, Lucas Hernandez, uh, from Atletico for 80 million euros. So, you know, some some deals have even been done already. So the idea that the, the transfer window doesn't, um, the transfer market doesn't start until the window opens is just wrong in, in modern football, this level of the game. And there's no director of football in place. Um, what they've got, I, I am told um, from discussions people have been having with Manchester United, I know Manchester United have been offered um, a number of uh, elite sports directors who've worked at the top level of uh, the game, who you would have thought um, from the outside they would be interested in at least interviewing and talking to, given the importance they've placed um, on hiring a sports director. Uh, and they've turned down those opportunities. Um, the suggestion I'm hearing is that they will make an appointment, but that appointment will not have the power um, that you would expect of a sports director. It will be in some ways a, a titular appointment. So we, they can say we've put a director of football in place, but actually that director of football will be working within the current structure, which is Ed Woodward uh, in charge of the club and signing off on all transfers uh, and taking an important role in negotiations. Um, and the director of football will very much work under him. Um, I think it's interesting that uh, you see in the last few weeks um, in a large amount of discussion that uh, the director of football role 
might go to Mike Phelan. Um, it seems that that is a, a role that Phelan covets. Um, he's obviously been operating as a sports director before um, Manchester United brought him back to the club in, in the Australian A-League, uh, working for the Gold Coast Mariners. So he has some experience in the role. Um, the suggestion is that he would be uh, promoted up out of the coaching staff to be sports director and that Michael Carrick would become um, Solskjaer's first assistant in, in the, this system. And I think you could see that as um, meeting um, that kind of structure that I've been told United are looking for, which is one with Woodward retaining control and, uh, and a name being put in place uh, that would um, work as a PR move. Um, I think uh, Phelan is an extremely popular figure with the Manchester United fans, understandably so. He's a very good coach, very good assistant coach, um, who was uh, important, very important to Sir Alex Ferguson and, um, and has been identified as one of the, the big mistakes that David Moyes made um, upon uh, taking over from Ferguson that he didn't retain Phelan as an assistant role. But I think it's a, it's a big step up to take um, someone whose experience of working as a sports director per se is in Australian football and then putting him in charge of being the, sport, the first ever sports director at the biggest club in English football and one of the two biggest clubs in world football. They're, they're very different remits. And yeah, I, was, I was just thinking about this this morning and I was imagining that if, if a year ago uh, the Transfer Window podcast had led in a story that Manchester United wanted to, to completely turn around uh, their club uh, and put themselves back in competition for winning the Premier League and uh, competing in the Champions League again. And their master plan was to hire a manager from the Norwegian League and hire a sports director from the Australian League. Um, what the response would have been if we'd led in the story like that. But here we are, uh, six months down the line, and there's a very good possibility that Manchester United will go into next season with exactly those two people in charge of the club and with the remit of uh, fixing all those problems. This is, you're right, Duncan, it, it does seem um, unbelievable, bordering on ludicrous that this would be the case. And you mentioned there that Phelan's incredibly popular with the fans, and I, I agree with you on that. But at the same time, I don't think Manchester United fans are stupid. I do think that they will, they will look at the current setup, and are, I think are already looking at it, not through red tinted glasses. Um, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, as he did after the final defeat by Everton yesterday, can go and applaud the fans <clears throat> all he likes after the game. He can apologise to the fans all he likes for the defeat. And he can praise them, saying that they were the only people who turned up at Goodison Park uh, for that uh, really dreadful, dreadful uh, performance by Manchester United. And it will wash for a little bit, partly because of where it's coming from, i.e. a club legend, and partly because um, it's a great PR strategy on Solskjaer's part to applaud the fans both metaphorically and literally, for their commitment whilst banishing and um, remonstrating with his players for their lack of commitment, whereas the fans themselves turned up, etc., etc. 
But the bottom line is, fans, you know, they, they pay a lot of money, not just to watch their team with a season ticket, but to travel all over the country and in Europe as well to watch them play. And if results are poor, then <clears throat> it will not hold water for very long. And indeed, six defeats in his last eight games since becoming full-time coach, I don't think... I mean, any other Manchester manager would be effectively facing questions about him being sacked. Does that not speak to the fact that United have jumped the gun? I mean, we, we discussed this in detail in previous podcasts. There was no reason for them not to wait until the end of the season and fully assess all aspects of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's reign since he was appointed. Why didn't they do that? Two, two reasons for that, Johnny. One was <clears throat> the um, momentum which had been created by the undefeated period at the, since he was appointed interim coach um, and also the the um, the results which come as a part of that. Obviously, the reverse that they achieved in the part of France against PSG was the... Uh, the final piece of the uh, of the jigsaw, as far as Manchester United were concerned, in terms of announcing Solskjaer as full time coach. Um, so that's the first thing, and the second, um, in terms of uh, appointing Solskjaer too early, was that well, he's cheap, you know, and he fits in with what Duncan's been describing, which is a Woodward-led regime, which doesn't tolerate nor invite. Um, any debate or criticism from the football department about how things are done at the higher level. Um, effectively, a patsy culture, whereby um, what they would like to see is uh, Woodward and the Glazers controlling effectively all decisions, major decisions in the football department, but without the responsibility. So power without responsibility. Um, as it's been under Woodward, six managers, six years, and, re- and no Premier League titles. He's the one consistent factor with Manchester United not winning the Premier League since Alex Ferguson retired in 2013. And he does it because he's got power without responsibility. So even when he takes on a manager like Jose Mourinho, who wants to be fully in charge of everything regarding the running of the football side of the club, he denies him that by not buying the players that Mourinho um, uh, recommends and wants to fit into his team. He then... simply watches and stands by as Mourinho's um, eviscerated in the press for his personal um, attitude, for his moods, for this, for that. There was never any support from Mourinho about that. And now we've got a manager whose record is, you know, verging on um, tragic with regards to since he was appointed full-time coach. And as I said, somebody would be questioned at this point, but because of the love-in with, um, you know, with Solskjaer, that's not been the case. Now, Solskjaer, the Solskjaer narrative has been incredible in terms of the way that it's turned uh, on, on three points of axis since he was appointed. Um, he came in, and I think it was December, um, after the first couple of wins, said that how football's easy when you've got such a great group of players, they're brilliant, you know, all they need was to be was motivated, etc., etc., to the point where in the last sort of two weeks, and certainly after the defeat to Everton, um, the quotes have become much different. There are players here who need a reality check, players here who they know who they are, um, either need to step up to the, the mark or they need to leave. And again, the third axis of that, and again, the third point where managers you know who are struggling or desperate is that they um, go to the fans and applaud them and say how great they are in order to make sure the fans are still on side 
Therefore, the board have to look at how the fans are still inside. Therefore, let's not sack them yet. Now, it took Mourinho two and a half years to get to that point. It's taken Solskjaer six months. So, where does he go from here, Duncan? I don't know. I think he's in, in a difficult position. Um, I think Manchester United are in a very difficult position. I think, to answer Johnny's question, I think there was such a momentum behind Solskjaer. Um, and understandably so, because he did change um, the entire uh, mentality and feeling about the club. And it became from you know six months of basically uh, depression and misery and... The, the manager of the club, you know, making it quite clear that he felt the squad wasn't good enough um, for the task that was being set, um, which set a bad tone and which caused problems within the squad because Woodward was not prepared to support him in improving the squad. It went from that to 10 wins and 11, I think, was uh, was Solskjaer's initial run of results. And then and with the last one... Um, with then the, the the victory over Paris Saint-Germain, it wasn't quite the last one in that sequence, but the victory over Paris Saint-Germain having, you know, the the, the the sense that they would now have to appoint him because the fans wanted it and there was no other choice and he'd proven himself to be uh, the, the answer, the antidote to um, the Mourinho problem. Look, you can go back. This isn't in hindsight because we were saying this at the time. Um, we're, we're talking about some of the performances in the games um, and we're talking about uh, some of the fortune in, in certain results a big example being the, the Tottenham win over Manchester United when David De Gea was exceptional um, but also talking about the, 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 the opponents that were playing you go through those 11 games they played Cardiff City, Huddersfield Bournemouth, Newcastle, Reading Tottenham and when De Gea was exceptional. Brighton, Arsenal was probably the, the one uh, win where you'd say absolutely they deserve to, to beat um, opponents on the, the same tier as them. Burnley, Leicester and Fulham. I mean, that is the easiest run of, of, of uh, fixtures in, in Manchester United's season. Now you go to the last eight games, they've lost six out of those eight games. Um, the two games they won at home to uh, Manchester, to Watford and to West Ham United, 2-1 each. Both games fortunate, um, certainly fortunate to win and, and could easily have lost at least one of them. Um, I was looking at Solskjaer's record at Cardiff City, which we, we all know was very bad because he, he came in in January, got them relegated and was sacked, um, I think, the, either September, October, uh, the next season. His worst sequence uh, of results at Cardiff City with six defeats in eight games. So uh, to do the same with Manchester United, to do the same with a squad of players that uh, he described as being a great bunch of players and their quality is unbelievable and football is easy if you've got good players, is, is pretty damning. Um, it's also damning that he, one of the things, the messages he's repeated over and over and over again is, I don't want my team to be outrun. A Manchester United team must always outwork the opponents, the teams I played in, we always outran our opponents. I'd be interested to see um, running stats on that, for example. For, for, uh, obviously, they're not available from that era, era, but I'd be surprised if Manchester United always outrun all of their opponents under Sir Alex Ferguson. But be that as may, what happened on Saturday was that his team was outrun uh, by Everton four kilometres in the first half 
and eight kilometers over the whole game. So they were massively outrun, despite working under a manager who has emphasized that as being the most important thing he wants um, from his players. And clearly the manager didn't manage to turn it around at half time because it was four behind in the first half and four behind in the second half. Um, so it was an interesting, I, I find it was quite an amusing and astute comment from um, David Priest. Uh, the former Aberdeen goalkeeper is now a goalkeeping coach and uh, and writes uh, some very good articles on on goalkeeping uh, in the media these days. He commented after the game. He said, "If anyone else was at the wheel, they'd have got the breathalyzer out by now." And I think I think that sums it up. It, it's only because it's Solskjaer. It's only because there's such a um, a depth of affection for him. And I think because he started so well and, and it seemed he was the answer, that people haven't got the breathalyzer out yet. Is it not, though, Duncan, that this is the same set of players that have now let down three managers, in some cases four managers? So looking at the manager as perhaps not the correct strategy, perhaps Ole has to go in and root and branch, get rid of some of these failing players. There's no doubt the players have to change. Absolutely no doubt players have to change. I mean, how many times have we, we said that on this podcast? We've been saying it for two years that the players aren't good enough for the, the job set them. Um, and obviously, as Ian has pointed out, Solskjaer is now going down that line of, um, you know, he said after the Everton, he was asked if the, if the players cared enough after the Everton game. And he's, he, he sat in the press conference and said, I don't know, I don't know, twice. So he's gone down. He's going down that route of um, it's the players that have to change, and he's also playing uh, a card of, of, of that they're not fit enough. And once he's got a good preseason in them, uh, that'll help. Yes, he's right. The players aren't good enough. But Manchester United have handed out five new contracts this season um, to players who, all of whom I think, uh, would have been shifted on by the previous manager if he'd been given uh, the freedom to do so. That was the exception of Ashley Young. He, he would have retained Young because Young is a good squad player for him and, um, and a good uh, a good captain of the side, which is extremely short of leaders. That's another problem Manchester United have. They have no on-field leaders. Um, and four of those contracts were handed out after Solskjaer became manager. The, the two really obvious mistakes in my view to give long-term contracts to Chris Smalling and, and Phil Jones who have demonstrated themselves not to be sufficient standard to be the cornerstones of Manchester United defence and I've seen that under what um, every manager including Sir Alex Ferguson um, and who does Solskjaer keep playing keep starting at centre-back uh, as, his, as his preferred centre-back pairing in, in these key games, Smalling and Jones. So he's been consulted on these, on these uh, contracts and he's approved them. So that suggests um, you, you, we should have some doubts about his judgment on players uh, going into a, a summer where judgments about players are going to be fundamental. And you, you're talking about it not being about the manager it's the same set of players, the same set of players have let everyone down. This manager is the one who's produced the worst sequence of results with these players. Of All of those managers have been there. And the irony, of course, in terms of Smalling and Jones is that they were originally signed by Sir Alex Ferguson, the man who 
clearly is Solskjaer's mentor and whom he keeps referring back to as saying, under the gaffer, Sir Alex, this would never have happened, this would never have happened. Well, <laughs> you have been in situ while Smalling and Jones were given new contracts. So effectively, you've signed the same two players that Sir Alex signed, who are patently not good enough to be Manchester United's starting two centre-backs. <clears throat> and it is... I mean, it's almost, it's almost bordering on ridiculous that Solskjaer can sit there when asked, do you think the care is clear enough? And he says, I don't know. And then he pauses, says again, I don't know. And then the question's put back to him. And he says, you'd have to ask them. Now, if I'm, if I'm a board member, a shareholder, an owner, a fan of Manchester United, which I am none of the above, I would still be saying to myself, it's your job to know. You have to know. You go in that dressing room, you look in those players' eyes and you tell them, either you care enough or you don't, because if you don't, you will not be in the team. And this is ridiculous. This is Manchester United. This is a club which prides itself on players who play for the jersey and the badge, etc., etc. That's what I did if I'm only going to Solskjaer. That's what my teammates did. And therefore, I know what it's like to be in the position where I care enough to run that extra metre and to go the extra three, four minutes to make sure that the result is achieved. And yet Solskjaer sits there meekly and says, I don't know. While at the same time saying, it's not good enough. It would never happen under Sir Alex. Now, I think he's lost. He often looks like a little boy lost, and I think he now is lost. We do, do have to say there's four games left. They're only two points off fourth place. Um, he could still get them in the Champions League. Uh, this this week will be pivotal, obviously, but it's still possible for him to qualify for the Champions League, which would change change uh, the atmosphere again around the club to a certain extent. Um, I think it would help in terms of recruitment in the summer. And and there's one other possible get out for him which um, I raised in my, my column for the Daily Record this weekend which is if if Manchester City are handed down a Champions League ban uh, by UEFA which there is immense pressure within the game uh, for the, the result of their formal investigation into um, FFP uh, cheating um, to for that to be the punishment that they're given and I think it's far easier for UEFA now to ban Manchester City in the sense that they're not going to be finalists in this season's Champions League. They will not be the defending champions for next season's Champions League, so they don't have to worry about either of those issues of handing down a ban to a club that's reached their showpiece uh, final or handing a ban to a club that's even worse, won their showpiece final. If that were to happen, the fourth... Um, the, the four Champions League places that, that the Premier League has would be retained and they would drop down to the fifth team. So fifth place in this season's Premier League could qualify you for the Champions League were Manchester City to be banned. And imagine, imagine the irony of the situation where Manchester City were to win the league, uh, Manchester United were to finish fifth. Uh, and Manchester United get into the Champions League because Manchester City have broken FFP rules and finally been properly punished for them. And if Arsenal or Chelsea win the Europa League and finish in the top four, then they qualify for the Champions League for Europa League qualification. So therefore, would England have six teams in the Champions League next season? No, there's there's a maximum of five. You can 
you can have no more than five teams from one country in the Champions League. Um, if you win the Champions League and don't qualify from your league position, you get a Champions League place. If you win the Europa League, you get a Champions League place. Again, if you don't qualify from your league position. Maximum of five. So there is a scenario where Tottenham were to finish outside the top four, win the Champions League. Arsenal or Chelsea win the Europa League, also finishing outside um, the, the top four. In that case, both Tottenham and Arsenal or Chelsea, whoever are the Europa League winners, would go into the Champions League. And the fourth place team in the Champions League would miss out. So um, oh. <laughs> fourth might not get you in yet. It, I think it's unlikely that both Tottenham and the Europa League winners finish outside the outside the top four, especially the way Manchester United are playing at the moment. But not impossible because there's only a three-point gap between um, those four clubs at present. OK, we're going to move on now to a transfer deal that may happen at Liverpool, Duncan. Fill us in. Um, yeah, we've seen, um, seen some reports that uh, Liverpool are uh, keen on Lille's uh, best forward, uh, Nicholas Pepe, we, um, we talked about last week, actually, as, um, as being a player that uh, Manchester United had been recommended to sign um, last season, uh, last summer, but uh, didn't action it. And he's gone, gone on to be um, one of the top performers in, in uh, the French Championship this season. Um, Liverpool have contacted um, Lille to ask about the players, um, well, not so much availability because everyone knows he's available. The, uh, the president of Lille has put him on the transfer market and said he'll be sold this, this summer, but ask what the cost would be. Um, that contact has not been direct. It's been done through agents. So Liverpool are not as anywhere near as advanced in this pursuit of a player who I think would, would very much fit um, Liverpool's attack. Um, and would be a, an excellent um, alternative to actually any of their, their um, first choice front three players in, in any of those positions were they to, to sign them. Uh, they're not as advanced as the competition. Um, the asking price at present from Lille is €80 million. Euros. I think they feel they might be able to get beyond that if they can have um, the likes of Liverpool, Chelsea, who are also... Uh, been watching Leo games um, recently. Um, Paris Saint-Germain are interested in the player, uh, but they also have Bayern Munich. And Bayern Munich are at present in pole position in the sense that they have made a 60 million euro offer for um, the Ivorian forward. Uh, that's not been accepted, obviously. Um, but uh, I think there's a, a good chance that they will increase their bid. I mean, they've shown their... Um, their appetite and attitude towards this transfer market in the signing of Lucas Hernandez, and they've they've stated that they're prepared to to spend uh, more and spend heavily again in this window. So um, yeah, Pepe will definitely move this summer for sure because um, Leo want to sell him. They want to take that money and reinvest in similar young talents who they'll they'll grow up and then sell one, two, three years down the line, um, and Liverpool are in their thinking, but I think there's a long way to go before um, he becomes, uh, Liverpool become the strongest candidates for his signature. 
Okay, it's time now for our heroes and villains round. We're going to look back over the weekend's action. Duncan, first of all, it's you. Who are you going to give us as your hero? Um, my hero this weekend is someone who I, who I would have down as one of the heroes of the season. Uh, in fact, a strong candidate for player of the season, um, which is Manchester City's uh, Bernardo Silva, who um, was once again exceptional um, in their uh, important 1-0 victory over Tottenham. Um, once again, an amazing um, physical output from him, uh, tactically very clever. And then on top of that, he has this sensational touch and vision for the game. Um, he does things that other players just simply aren't capable of seeing and implementing. And um, kind of kind of player, I, that, that's the type of player I really like to watch who, who um, puts both sides of the game together. But Hero not simply for that performance, uh, but for the way he finished it off in his post-match interview, uh, which was when he was awarded the, the Premier League Man of the Match for the game, he immediately handed it over to his teammate Phil Foden, uh, who was starting his first Premier League match, scored the goal inside uh, 10 minutes and uh, played very well. I think uh, actually a very good piece of management from uh, from Pep Guardiola to start Foden against Tottenham um, in the third of the, the three games they've played in such a, a tight period of time because he's a player they won't have started against before and uh, not only having the energy to come into that game but also pausing posing them uh, different problems. So I think it was clever on Guardiola's part, but more so um, shows Bernardo Silva's character in, uh, in handing that trophy over to, to a young teammate um, on, on TV uh, and, and making it clear that uh, he felt that Foden was the best player in the game rather than himself. What about, uh, what about a villain from you, Ian? Villain? Well, I don't like to persecute referees, um, as everyone knows, but Martin Atkinson came up with a very... I'd say, not, it's not villainous, but it's inconsistency, which is something players hate above all else. If you're on a pitch and anyone who's played football at any level knows if something happens against your team um, and a foul or a, an important decision is given against you, <clears throat> and then the same thing happens to your team and that decision is given or not given um, in your favour, then there's really nothing worse in terms of winding you right up. And for that case, uh, Martin Atkinson uh, in the Liverpool Cardiff City match, he awards a penalty to Mo Salah um, after Sean Morrison, to be fair, repeatedly pulls and tugs on his jersey. He doesn't actually pull him over at any point, but I think there were just maybe five or six too many um, for Atkinson not to give the penalty. But it should be noted that um, the same player was impeded by Andy Roberts in the Liverpool left back when he was going for a header, which would have given him a clear header on Liverpool's goal uh, in order to, to get Cardiff in the game and, and did not give the penalty for that. And so my villain would have to be Martin Atkinson. I'm not quite sure if he's down the old piano bar at La Manga singing um, You'll Never Walk Alone, but uh, maybe you'll get invited if Liverpool win the league at the end of the season. OK, well, it's time to slam this particular transfer window shut. But fear not, we're going to be back on Wednesday to answer your burning questions. 
To continue the debate, we are all on Twitter. We have our own Transfer Window official account at Transfer Podcast. But if you want to talk to us directly, I'm at Johnny R. McFarlane. Ian is at Garbo SG. And Duncan is at Duncan Castles. If you like the podcast, and we know thousands of you do, please give us something back by popping onto iTunes and giving us a five-star review, as this helps us reach as many listeners as possible. Until Wednesday, thanks for listening. <laughs>